welcome to the February 2010 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. And uh, with our special guest, uh, Jack Kinnear. Hi. Hey, Jack. Uh, now, we've joined these folks here together today to talk about this issue of two-kingdom theology. Uh, this is something that we brought up a couple months ago as we were talking with Ken Myers on our podcast. Uh, we got into the whole issue of culture-making and the role of the Christian in culture, and this inevitably leans the conversation towards something that theologians talk about called two-kingdom theology. Now, uh, Matt and I have, have certainly read about it and thought about it, and but we've not thought about it to a great extent, and to be honest uh, for myself, uh, much of my thinking on two-kingdom theology has just been in the past couple months as we've been preparing for uh, for this podcast. So we wanted to bring somebody on who we knew had thought about this in depth, particularly as we're going to be talking next month with Jason Stellman, who's just written a book on Two Kingdom Theology. Uh, but we're bringing on here today our, our old friend Jack Kinnear, who's been on some previous podcasts. And Jack's always willing to talk about a number of uh, any, anything we put before you, aren't you, Jack? Oh, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Now, Jack, you are you continue to serve um, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Yeah, uh, they're teaching New Testament. Uh, you're teaching Greek, and you're teaching uh, several Greek of the New Testament. Jesus and general epistles and Revelation and things like that. Okay. Oh, the easy stuff. You could teach the yeah, easy, easy stuff, easy. Jack. Yeah. Well, what we want to do today is lay out a framework of you know what is what's the issue? Why all of the all of a sudden are we seeing books on this? Uh, why did Michael Horton just write uh, three blog posts on it? Uh, Westminster Seminary in California is doing a whole conference on it. Uh, one of the professors out there, David Van Drunen, has just written a uh, a very extensive work entitled Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms. Um, so there's there's a lot going on with this issue, and we thought it would be helpful for this podcast uh, and for our listeners is to provide you with with a an outline of what this whole thing is about. So with that in mind, um, let me give just a very uh, I'm going to give a very brief, almost stereotypical definition of the two camps, and then I'm going to let you, Matt and Jack, uh, kind of chime in and, and take over the rest of this conversation and, and correct these. Uh, but but the common stereotypes are these. I think the common stereotype is on the one side a non-two-kingdom view. So we would call this uh, a transformationalist view, or we would call this a, a theonomic view. And that would be the view of somebody who would say, if we can just make the culture Christian, if we can just vote the right way and get the government uh, to put prayer back in schools, this, you know, everything will change and Christ's kingdom will come. Uh, that would be the, the one extreme end uh, away from a two-kingdom view, whereas an extreme end on the two-kingdom view would be somebody who says, you know what, uh, culture transformation is not the job of the church. Uh, the church receives a kingdom. It doesn't create one. Uh, what our job as a church is just to take the sacraments, hear the word preached, uh, be fathers and mothers and, um, and plumbers, and let's just go on with our life. And if Jesus wants to do something through, through us, he can. 
So I, I would say those are the two extremes. Now, at that point, let me let you two guys step in. Maybe we'll start with you, Jack. Correct those extremes, or maybe tell me I'm absolutely right. Those are the extremes. <laughs> well, I think what you have is you have you have American A and American B, but not the historical C. Okay. So let me fill that in for you. Your description of the non-two-kingdom view, whether you call it transformation or theonomic, really reflects the the sort of approach uh, that I think more characterizes where American evangelicals were um, during the Reagan years. Um, and I'm not sure it's actually an accurate portrait even of what the theonomists themselves said, although I'm not a theonomist. And the the idea of two kingdoms is the idea that the that the kingdom of this world is governed in some way other than directly by Christ and Scripture. That's at its heart. In other words, if if you say there are two kingdoms, then you have to have two kings and two laws and two orders. So be the the rule of Christ and the rule of this earth would be those two. Or something like that. Right. Right. Both of which fall short of the historic Christian and historic Reformed understanding of of the relationship of Christ to history. Because that's really what's at stake um, in this whole debate. What is the relationship of Jesus as the Christ to the whole flow of human history? Precisely. And so... so is Jack, is that why somebody like Van Drunen would write a book uh, about the two kingdoms and natural law? Because natural law would reign over one kingdom and, and right. special revelation would rule over the other. That's correct. Okay. That, that's, that's the two kingdom view in its consistency, that there are two distinct law orders, one based on, on God as creator, on God the Son as creator, but not God the Son as incarnate redeemer. Um and therefore only on natural law. And there are aspects of that in the American experience in the past um, that we have to recognize were there in the founding of the nation. But the historic view of the Church is that Christ is reigning to establish his kingdom everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And that the goal of that kingdom, among other things, is is that... the human world would be willingly governed by Christ and his law. Hmm. That's only one Not kingdom. imposed in the sense of how theonomy uh, it, it can be construed, not imposed from without, but chosen to live under Christ because yeah. of renewal within. I, I find myself in, in the awkwardness of defending the theonomists. Well, I... I, uh, I don't, you know. the, theonomists, <laughs> the theonomists never argued for imposition. Okay. But only for consensus. Okay. All right. What right. they said was, when we have a, the great majority of people in any given nation who are consciously Christians desiring to live under the reign of Christ, what does that look like? And what it looks like for the theonomist has to do with their distinctive view of the judicial laws of Moses. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. But, but, but the only thing about the theonomists that makes them something other than what was the broad consensus um, in the Reformed churches was their distinctive view of the laws of Moses, the view of the confession and of the church as a whole, 
is that the judicial laws of Moses were designed only for Israel, and except as far as they have a certain principle of equalness in them, they don't apply to all other nations in the same way. Okay. Okay? In other words, yep. in other words the, 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 the uh, law requiring death for idolatry belonged uniquely to Israel, does not belong to all nations. Right. Okay. But what they held in common, what all Christians largely held in common from the earliest years through until at least the rise of pietism, um, was the conviction that people, who, in whatever walk of life they are in, ought always in everything to be the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. And if, if your walk of life turned out to be king, or, or, or governor, or what have you, then you should be in submission to Christ in that public office. And what sort of implications does that have that a two kingdoms person would be uncomfortable with? Well, again, there's a, there's a range of opinion on that. Um, some would, would, would only want to see the general principles of biblical truth influencing the general shape of society. Okay. Uh, some would want to see only arguments made uh, for um, the uh, governance of society on the basis of natural law, which was supposedly we hold in common with the unbeliever, mm -hmm. and not specific affirmations of authority and of uh, moral order from the scriptures, which apply only to Christians. Okay. Okay. Um, so if, if that's the historic position, where do you see in the American experience and in the American Reformed experience in the landscape that we sort of has developed, uh, how has that gotten distorted from the historical understanding? Well, there have been a couple of places where it took place. Let, let, let me just point to two of them. Okay. Uh, one has certainly been the development of a pessimistic all-millennialism. Okay. Um, now, maybe some of our listeners, hopefully most of our listeners will know what that means, but just give us in a let, nutshell what, how you would say that. Not premillennial, and not sure that the gospel will make a whole lot more progress than it's made so far. So that Christians will be, for the most part, a minority in non-Christian societies until the return of Christ. Okay. If that's your view of the future, a, a, a kind of stalemate view, a misreading of the wheat and tares um, in the uh, synoptic tradition, okay. then, then you can't imagine um, a basis for society that is explicitly Christian. Okay. Because you're a, Christians are a minority. Right. Right? And will perpetually be. And perpetually be, so, so there's no reason to think about it. Okay. In fact, to think about it is to get you off the track of playing church. Uh, excuse me, uh, being church. Being church, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, the other factor that plays a role, especially in the PCA, is the way in which our forefathers in the faith dealt with the obvious sin of slavery. Hmm. Okay. In which they took the confessional language about the church not interfering in um, civil matters out of its historical and limited context and turned it into the statement that, in fact, the church is only concerned with saving souls and getting them to heaven um, and not concerned with the order of society. We had the church ought to keep silent on that. 
And of course, there remains resistance in the PCA to speak about any matter that the now thoroughly secularized American state has decided is a public matter. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it's, and so so those two effects, you would say, and uh, for those who are listen, uh, who are outside of the, they don't know what PCA is. That's the Presbyterian Church in America. It's a denomination in which um, Jack and Sean and I are all ordained. That's where we hold our credentials in the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, and so you're saying, what what do you think? It, not just for the PCA, but broadly, because I think it's bigger than I think that that. Uh, both of those things are certainly true of the PCA, but they're true of other bodies as well, other Presbyterian Reformed bodies. It, when you combine the two of those, um, what is the effect that you see in, say, how a minister looks at um, what he ought to encourage his people towards in, in their uh, other six days of life? Can I back off that question for a minute and, and go below it? Okay. Yes. Let me, see, let me let me look at it this way. A, a little witticism of mine. All right. Okay. Every every heresy is ultimately a christological heresy. Every mistake in theology ends up distorting who Jesus is. Okay. And what's at stake in these current debates about the extent to which and on what basis Christians get involved in the governance of society? which is what we're talking about. Unavoidably ask the question, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? Hmm. What does the title Christ, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, or, or similar terms like uh, Lord and King, what do those terms mean? How are they defined in the biblical uh, narrative? And what are we saying to our world? Now, here's my problem with the two-kingdom theory. Okay. We are not saying to the world, as the gospel, that Jesus is king of his church. The world doesn't care if we think Jesus is king of his church. What we are saying to the world is that God has made Jesus Lord of all, King of kings, mm. Lord of lords. He's placed all things under his feet, and he commands and summons all men, including rulers, in their acts of ruling, to submit to King Jesus. Mm. Now that is not something you hear very often today from the pulpits, and certainly not on television in TV preachers. Right. The result is that the secularists have free reign in American society because no one stands against them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. In terms of natural law, in terms of the principle of the, va of, of the value of human life and pro-life movement, in terms of uh, traditional marriage, why is it that Christians are in favor of traditional marriage? Why did our... How did our marriage, one man, one woman, for life, get to be traditional? Because Christ the King commanded it. It has no other historical basis but the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're arguing against the uh, uh, sodomite conjugation, um, I won't call it marriage, when we're arguing against that as, as something publicly to be approved of and given special rights and privileges, 
Mm-hmm. What we're really arguing for is whether or not our society will be governed by King Jesus and his law, or whether it will be, cover- it will be governed by human immorality. There's no middle ground. Now, distinguish that from, because that, that's going to sound like to a lot of people, you're saying something very nuanced, but that's going to sound like to a lot of people, um, like theonomy. That's, that's right, because the theonomists were saying that with the consensus of the historic church. What made them distinctive, what set them apart, their mistake, was the hermeneutical mistake of thinking that the blueprint, if you will, for how to govern a Christian society were the judicial laws of Moses given to Israel. Okay. Whereas, so the problem was not there. The faith of the church is that it's the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. that is the basis to govern society. Mm-hmm. So, so therefore the theonomists got into arguing about whether or not you're going to have uh, a, a death penalty crime for, for um, adultery right, right. Or, yeah. or idolatry or something like that. And, you know, what you're going to do with it, and they, and they kind of got uh, caught up in, in, the, in dietary laws and, and that sort of stuff. What would you say... But their, but their is, underlying okay. assumption wasn't out of accord with historic Christian faith and practice, just their distinctive hermeneutic. And is this something that's enshrined in, in our confessional statements, or is it something that is more, this is the way they thought about it, but it wasn't enshrined in confessional statements? Well, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> In our, as, a, as a Presbyterian holding to the Westminster Confession of Faith, as a summary of the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scripture, right? does the Confession of Faith teach that the moral law of God applies only to those who are believers in Jesus? It does not. No. What does it teach? It teaches that it applies to everybody. It was so yeah. what's, what, what because is it's the, a part of creation in the view of the confession. It's the it's a part of creation. It was imparted to Adam and Eve, and then right. restated in the Ten Commandments. But the point is that in the confessional statement, what is the basis for human society's order? Hmm. Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, the moral law of God. Right. That's all I'm saying. And it's interesting because in an email dialogue now, with now, the, now you, you can ask the question. Okay, you've got people here who don't agree that the Bible is God's Word, and they're not going to listen to you say that. Can you make secondary or tertiary arguments from human conscience and from a, mm-hmm. the, the effects of human behavior to buttress convincing them that they ought to live by this law, even if they don't agree that it's God's law? Yeah, I guess it's fine. Do that. I don't care. Right. But right. the question is, what, what do we as Christians say in the Gospel? We say that Christ is on the throne of God. He is king of kings, and this is his law for all humankind. And by the way, whether you like it or not, you will stand before Christ in the judgment and be judged in terms of not natural law. Mm. Not in our society. Right. Okay. We're, we're yeah. beyond that pagan era in our society, yeah. but in terms of God's moral law, abundantly available um, in uh, in our society, in its, in its uh, in inspired and uh, scriptural form. Now, what would you say? Now, I asked this question of a friend over email that that was dialoguing with, um, and asked him if the syllogism, according to his mind, was correct. And I frankly can't remember his answer, but but let me give you the syllogism and okay. see if you agree. Um, natural law equals ten commandments. True. 
Okay. David Van Drunen argues the same thing in his book. He, argue, uh, uh, he argues that the natural law is the revelation of God's moral law through created things. Okay. I'm not sure See, I'd want to go with that definition, but I, I, but I, I get his yeah. gist and I agree. You get, you get the gist. Okay, so to me, in a sense, I mean, there's like sort of two frames of reference to think about. Um, and, and this was an interesting point just in the email dialogues that I've had over the last couple of months is um, – Coming at things from a natural law perspective, if natural law equals Ten Commandments, even if it's not, you don't pull out your Bible and say the Fifth Commandment, but you say, the, or, well, as we look at, uh, well, Seventh Commandment, if we look at, at moral issues related to marriage and sexuality and things like that, right? So if we look at um, the different forms that uh, sexual immorality takes, right, and many of our arguments you could make, uh, your uh, – a statement earlier, Jack, about the the supposed union of people of the same sex. Um, it, natural law can come in and say those parts don't fit together, um, and we come. And the response that you get is, well, yeah, but we have the right to self define. And so, natural law, from an evangelistic perspective, natural law is just as offensive as if you pulled out your Bible, because it, they testify to the same thing, a creator who has shaped things that you're in rebellion against. Wait, I, let me disagree with you at that point. I, okay. I grant you that natural law is offensive. Okay. I grant you that. All right? All right. But men in our society, our society, and I'm talking about now how we're talking with, 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 um, with Buddhists in Nepal. Okay. Right? I'm talking about American society. American okay. society is not in open, blatant rebellion against natural law. It you don't is think? Open, it, no, let me finish. Okay. It is an open, blatant rebellion against King Jesus, because we are a historic Christian culture. Ah, uh, okay. We are, in terms we, of the principles that founded the Republic. It's writing like about, about, about the Gentiles in the pre-Christian era, as he does in Romans 1. We are talking about a society in which the gospel has been openly announced for its entire existence mm. from our colonial foundings, in which today the vast majority of Americans still say they are Christians. Whatever mm. that may mean in their own minds, they say that in the mm. poll. Um, in which if you go down any street in any city on the corner is a Christian church. Mm. You've got to go looking for a mosque. you even got to go looking for a synagogue. But you just have to open your eyes, and there's a Christian church. Right. The Christianity is omnipresent in our society. Mm. But we are in a society in which there are people who are openly hateful to the Lord Jesus Christ, despise him, speak evil against him and his word, belittle him and make fun of him. Mm. Well, I'm not surprised by that. That's what you expect from an unconverted heart. Right. The problem is the Christians who are wimping out, mm. who are caught by this idea of two kingdoms. Okay. And saying, well, in this public domain, I should not speak in the name of Jesus. Mm. You should speak in the name of Jesus everywhere. Well, if I do that, I won't get elected to the public office, which is more important, pleasing voters or pleasing Jesus. Mm. Who rules heaven and earth? Who causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall? You see, let me put it to you this way. American Christians have been thoroughly secularized. 
we see the world in secular terms. And then we etch out a little narrow area where we allow for Jesus and God, church, family. Now, I'm listening to... Profoundly in conflict with the whole witness of Holy Scripture. Hmm. Hmm. Why did the Berlin Wall fall down? Who brought it down? Why well, ostensibly, yeah. I mean, there's a whole historical argument for the reasons that it came down. But what's yeah, precisely? I know, I know. But when's the last time someone said King Jesus did it? Oh, in conformity with Scripture, to say he brought it down. Yes, we don't speak and act as if we we, we just had this this this, this uh, earthquake in Haiti, right? And, and Pat Robertson said something probably not real well thought out, and he's been taking all kinds of flack for it. Or well-timed, yeah. Well, and Danny Glover said something. I didn't hear what he said, and I don't know what people said against him. I just know there's a flack out there. I've been too right. busy grading papers. Yeah. But, but, when, when are the Reformed Christians going to stand up and say, Christ rules in all the affairs of men, and he brings these disasters upon us that we might recognize our sin and repent and turn from it. Now I'm I'm with you, Jack. I'm I'm with the Jesus is Lord. We are all being judged. In fact, I would make uh, I would want to be even clearer to say that we are going to be judged in this nation not merely because at our founding we took Jesus as King and now we've thrown him away, but I would say you know the Buddhist in Nepal that you mentioned is. Uh, is going to be judged as well for the same right. reason for rejecting right. King Jesus, right? But 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 he may be, re- but his, his cultural situation is, is markedly different than ours. C- certainly, That's certainly. Well, to to whom much is given, much is right. required. Well, and I think I think Jack said something a little bit different than what you just said, Sean. Which is, I'm not sure that there was a, you know, I'm not entirely convinced of the concept of that we were a Christian nation or that this was Christian America. But the way that Jack put it, I can be in full agreement with, which is that the preaching of the gospel has been from the beginning and all the way through all of our nation, and there's not somebody here who can say, I'm unaware. Yeah, with you, I'm I'm more comfortable with that than yeah. uh, assigning um, any status to America that would make it equivalent with Israel. Right. And, and right. it, may, it yeah. may be that's where the theonomic error came from, is is too much of a steeping in thinking that the promises of God applied to us in the same way that they applied as, to as, Israel. In distinction from any other nation of peoples. Well, with that with that in mind, though, what does um, what I'm what I'm trying to to work out in my mind is the, the word that was used earlier in the podcast, imposition. Where, where, and how do we impose these? Are they imposed? Are these views of King Jesus uh, a, a view of uh, marriage as Jesus understands marriage, as Jesus ordains marriage, as Jesus created marriage to be? How do I impose that? Do I impose that through my ordinary calling? Do I impose that? Do I impose that at all? I mean, it seems to me one of the distinctions on this on this continuum is going to be in how do I how do I bring that to bear on the world in which I live? 
first of all, you got to get rid of the word impose. Oh, absolutely. I'm just I'm using that he's, word. He's, he's, using. he's doing the straw man for you, Jack, so yeah. you can knock it down. Yeah. What, 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 what we need to do is proclaim. Now, let's say gospel minister to gospel minister. So it's all about the gospel. Our, our job is to proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the king, Jesus. It is the proclamation that God has, has um, satisfied his wrath in the death of his son, raised him from the dead, seated him at right hand at his right hand, and that Jesus now reigns until he defeats all of his enemies. So let me let me continue That's my the objective my, historical gospel. So it's winning winning souls through the gospel, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That's right. See That's all it is. To, to me that sounds like a two kingdom view. Let's just do church. Let's not Let's not worry no, no, about no, the no, culture. No. Let's just get the gospel to people, and then and the culture can take care of itself. No, 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 no. That, that's precisely to reject the two kingdom view. But isn't that what the? I, it seems to me that's what many in the two kingdom view are, are saying is that we just need we just need to have the sacraments and preaching, and we need to we need to share the yes, gospel. Yes, yes. yes, but you got. Remember my little witticism that all heresies ultimately end up being Christological heresies. The problem in America is that we are proclaiming a gospel in which we have misinterpreted to our culture who Jesus is. We have and not precisely who are we saying Jesus is, and who are you saying we ought to be saying Jesus is? We're not treating him as Lord. Is is? No, no, no. What we do, what we do, is we accept certain premises of our secularist society, and as a result, we dumb down the message of the gospel itself. Remember, I haven't said anything about political organizing or voting, or anything like that at all. As a gospel minister, it is not my job to hold political rallies. Right. It's not my job to to organize uh, voter registration things. It's fine for, for Christians to be doing those things, but it's not my job in my office as a minister. But it is my job in my office as minister to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that he is Lord of all, that he is King of Kings. And that that has implications for what you yes. do six days. Right. So if I'm proclaiming that, and the people of God are believing that Christ is king, and then I'm discipling them so that they're learning what the requirements of the moral law are, mm. all right? and right. they find themselves in a circumstance where now they're in positions to begin to influence the legal form of their society, what do they do? They ask the question, what does God's law require? And in our setting, how do we implement it as far as we can in our day? Mm. Now, that's a complex question. Um, and there have been some huge mistakes made in the history of the church in doing that, which have had very terrible unintended consequences. We need to be sure we don't make those same mistakes again. All right? But the difference is that when the troops showed up at Lexington, and commanded the Americans to lay down their arms, 
in the name of their sovereign, the King of England. Either the deacon of the Congregational Church or the pastor, there's a debate as to who said it. One of those two said, we have no sovereign but God, and we have no king but Jesus. Hmm. That's not to kingdom view. That says that whatever earthly kings there may be, they are wholly subordinate to God and to his Christ. Which we certainly see and, in the book of Acts. Yeah, or how about Psalm 2? Hmm. When's the last time a Reformed Christian has said to civil rulers, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed your way? Now, Jack, one thing that the, this could be, a way this could be misinterpreted is to say that... What you're doing by your office is proclaiming the gospel, and what it, your office in society by saying that, and that really the only thing you can offer societally outside of the church is law. But what you're saying is this is a part of the preaching of the gospel, if I'm hearing you correctly, and that yes. as I go about as a politician, I should be basically saying, Jesus is Lord of all. I serve him. You ought to also. Is That's that right. the kind of thing you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, the problem is I'm not a good theologian. I'm a simple Bible reader. I happen to read Greek and Hebrew, but I'm a simple Bible reader. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody would say that about you, Jack. And my Bible reading, I don't see this sort of, uh, of, of, of approach to society in which we do anything less than announce the truth of who Jesus is and call men to faith and repentance. Now, obviously, if I'm preaching that Jesus is Lord... His law is law for all men at all times and all places. And there are five Christians in a society of 50 million, all right? We're not going to have a whole lot of influence. But imagine what would happen in our society where something like 80% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. If 80% of Americans self-consciously said, I will submit myself to the lordship of Jesus and I will govern my life and my thinking and my values and therefore my political approach to things by his law and his law alone, there would be no abortion. Right. There would be no welfare transfers of, of, of funds from one group to another group. Okay. Uh, there would be no massive government intruding into the, li into the affairs of the lives of people. The problem in our society is not the secularists. I mean, they're always there. They're doing their thing. The problem are the Christians who are so compromised, so inconsistent with what the Bible says, that, 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 that we don't conceive of the issues in biblical terms, and we don't live out the meaning of Jesus as Lord. Hmm. Now, obviously, in any society, some people do not believe. All right? And at some point, some law system has to prevail. If somebody's ox gets gored, there's no way around that. Right. Okay. Inevitable. Inevitable. Um, but Christians have the idea that it's our job to get gored. Hmm. But it's our job to tell people that Jesus alone is Savior and King, and that submitting to him is life and salvation in this life, in the affairs of individuals, in a person's business affairs, 
and in the affairs of society and government. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Mm. We don't believe that anymore. I don't mean me, but I mean broadly American evangelicals, even Reformed Christians. Mm. Okay. And we don't so proclaim this is, it anymore. Right, right. It, and... Um, so you would see then, to get back to a point that I made earlier, that one's optimism about uh, the progress of the gospel has a lot to do with what you think is possible. Uh, let me say this. Because what we think what, is possible is frequently let, what we go after, let, right? Let me, state it, let me state it differently to you. Okay. okay as long as, you know, I, I don't like to be controversial, so I'll be careful with this. <laughs> the question is not whether or not we are going to have an optimistic eschatology. The question is whether or not we are going to do what Jesus said. Jesus said, go make disciples of a few people in a few nations, teach them some of my stuff, and the end will happen. <laughs> Since he said that, let's go do it. Well, it's absurd. He said, go make disciples of all nations, teach them all that I have commanded you. Why? Right. What does, what does Isaiah 2 say? That the day will come when the earth will be full, or when, when the nations will come and say, let us go up to the house of the Lord, that we may learn the, learn the ways of the Lord. And the law of the Lord will go out from Zion. Well, King Jesus is on Zion. And the law of the Lord ought to be going out. Now, we're facing a, a secularized Christian population in a society governed by hardcore secularists. Mm -hmm. But we have a huge Christian heritage that we can draw on to deal with that. We also have to keep our eyes on the rest of the world. We are nearing a Christian majority in Korea. Hmm. We already have African nations with Christian majorities. The Christian gospel is growing incredibly fast in China. What happens when the Christians are big enough to begin to influence the shape and course of their government and their society. By what standards will they govern themselves? That's and would the you question. say that if for, for a high kingdom, for a high two kingdoms, what, that's what I'm labeling, this position that's, that appears to be pessimistic, um, and in a sense, sometimes it kind of works out to a sort of... Uh, Anabaptist retreat, or even um, sort of a, a dispensational, you know, it's not going to get any better, who shines brass on a sinking ship, kind of thing. Um, it has the same effect. Which is it intriguing. Which is intriguing for a theology that's so different than either one of those. Right, but did you see, Reformed theology, as it is held today by lots of Reformed Christians is not the same thing as the theology held by our forefathers and expressed in the Confession. Distinguish that, then. Distortions have come in. Okay. All right? And the confessional material is not aimed to address those distortions that didn't exist in that day. Mm. All right? Nobody thought... That the, that the first table of the Ten Commandments did not apply to, to human society and civil government. Interesting. That, was not, that wasn't thinkable in that day. 
even in Luther's mind, when he distinguished the two kingdoms, I mean, his his that's I mean, he's the root of this, not uniquely Lutheran. Well, not Lutheran, but, Luther, but I'm, we're talking about reforms. We're talking about Calvin now. Okay. Okay. I mean, now Calvin, some people want to disavow what Calvin did in Geneva, though. You know that people want to disavow yeah. what Calvin did Cal- in Geneva. Cal- Calvin made mistakes. Right. Or, or or the city council and the and the and the Presbytery made mistakes. It wasn't wasn't like Calvin did it himself. I mean, he lost a whole lot of arguments and positions. And anyone weekly communion never got it. Yeah. Um, he was right too. Yep. A little plug. I got your paper right here, Jack. I start next week talking about that in my church. Um, but what everyone in the past worked off of was that Christ's kingdom should govern the whole of our lives. Now, Calvin lived in a day where everyone, virtually everyone, was a professing Christian in his society. Hmm. All right, we live in a day when it's a real mixed bag. The majority are professing Christians, but with the content of what that Christian means is so vague and fuzzy. People are so ill-taught, hmm. ignorant of Scripture, that it's a different world. I'm not suggesting a a political agenda now. I'm not suggesting that we need to to to, to vote for this person or, or or join this political party or encourage this particular piece of legislation. What I'm saying is we need to recover what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the king. Hmm. We need to recover the truth that his law is law for all men at all places and at all times. And we need to say to Christians, you govern yourself wholly by the word and law of God. Mm. And if you find that your political propensities are in conflict with the law of God, repent. Turn Mm. away from your sin. Stop calling evil good and good evil and Mm -hmm. do what's in the word of the Lord. I'll give you an example. There are tons of Christians today who are in favor of this government program or that government program where the government taxes people A, B, and C and gives them money to D, E, and F for some public purpose, like education loans or, or welfare transfer payments or what have you. Now, if I come to your house and say, look, I want your money, you say, hey, look, brother. Buzz off. Uh, the, the Bible says, do not covet. Right. But we are a society where covetousness has become public policy. <laughs> and where we and where coveting is now looked on as a good thing. <laughs> when we had this big fiasco with the banks and right. the insurance companies, and then there were these these people in the insurance company who were promised a certain amount of money as their remuneration. Right. And we bailed them out, okay, which we shouldn't have done in the first place. But having done that, then then then, then our president, people, members of Congress, went on TV and taught the American people to look at these people who received a wage or a, a payment based on a signed contract, that we should go protest in front of their houses. That's sin. That's covetousness. Now, maybe the contract was a stupid contract. And maybe the government, and there's no maybe about this, the government ought not to have taken the money from all of us and given it to the banks or the, mm-hmm. or the insurance companies. That was wrong. That was sin, too. So what happens if we simply teach that Jesus is Lord and King and we encourage Christians 
in all of their thinking and all of their living to be submissive to the law of the Lord. If only a few of us do that, it will be a personal, private piety. We will be the the counterculture in a a decadent society. Hmm. But if in the Lord's providence enough Christians begin to really follow the Lord Jesus Christ and take seriously the call to sanctification, Hmm. then their attitudes and ideas will start changing. And so will their preferences in politics Pretty soon we'll have people running for public office who are self-consciously Christian, who intend to live under the reign and rule of Christ, and who say, for this reason, vote for me. Mm. Then we're in a position to begin to recover what is often lost to us, and that is that with significant imperfections, our nation in America was founded by Christians who intended that our form of civil government should be submissive to King Jesus. Hmm. Not, with not imperfections, imp- obviously. Not, yeah. With imperfections. Not imposing Christian faith on others. Because that violates the rule of King Jesus. But creating an order of government in which government kept its fingers off of stuff it had no business touching. Hmm. Because certain things King Jesus reserves for himself, including the government of his church. Hey Jack, you, you've, you're giving us a, uh, a wonderful third way, which really is, is a, uh, a biblical way, and giving it with a, a good dosing of optimism in the gospel, which is always encouraging. Uh, I wonder, as we're, we're coming to the close here, if we could uh, maybe end and say, uh, Jack, if you could say, if you could talk to a what Matt is calling a high-to-kingdom view person, what would you say? And if you could talk to a high cultural transformation person, what would you say to each of those parties to convince them to come and join you? Well, that'd be that'd be one one quick statement. But how about quick? <laughs> okay. All right. Revelation eleven fifteen, which is terribly mistranslated from the King James forward which most people know as the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That text actually means the worldwide kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ has come, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's talking about, in Revelation, that text is talking about the consequence of the end of the Old Covenant and destruction of Jerusalem. Hmm. That marks the end of the period of the limited Israelite kingdom and the arrival of the worldwide kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Messianic age. And we need to say and we need to say to the world, Come to Jesus, find life in him, for he is reigning to defeat all his enemies. And your only hmm. options are <laughs> to submit to him and live or rebel against him and die. Because hmm. he will reign until he defeats all his enemies. Jack, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being with us. I'm glad to be with you. Talking about this, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you on again. We always appreciate these conversations, and I certainly hope that this podcast has been uh, helpful for you, our listeners, in understanding the, uh, understanding the two kingdom views, but also uh, in understanding the gospel and what it means to bring your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So with that in mind, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. 